0: Today we celebrate the Solemnity of the Ascension of our Lord, and I will be preaching on that in just a few minutes, but first I want to comment briefly on something else that I need, I think needs to be said. I want to comment on the unspeakable news about yet another horrific mass murder in one of America's schools this time, Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Politicians and pundits alike have immediately and predictably jumped on the story to, the, to tie in their own preconceived agendas to the absolutely heartless slaughter of 19 precious small children and two of their teachers by a mentally deranged 18-year-old. And as it always does in the face of heartbreaking events such as this, my own mind has been musing on a rhetorical but, I believe, critically important question. And the question is this, where were those politicians and pundits nine or ten years ago when the contemporaries of those children were being slaughtered in the womb? Where are they today as that slaughter continues unabated with the enthusiastic, even aggressive support, endorsement, and enablement of an entire political party, including virtually all of its self-proclaimed Catholic members? Because unless you have zero understanding about the causal relationships of things, and about the unforeseen but inevitable consequences of the unleashing of an absolute evil upon our culture, then you must consider the correlation between the murder of 65 million unborn children and the ongoing murder of an ever-increasing number of born children. There is both a spiritual dynamic and a natural one that is at work here, because the culture of death is real. As the prophet Hosea wrote, they who sow to the wind shall reap the whirlwind. They who sow to the wind shall reap the whirlwind. Brothers and sisters, our nation is reaping the whirlwind, sown to the wind of the culture of death. And even on a very natural level, violence begets violence. The hidden violence of abortion, the hidden violence of abortion is an enormous factor in the spawning of the very visible violence of school shootings and unborn murders, excuse me, and urban murders. Two articles jumped out at me on the internet this past week, both of them appearing in a once highly respected publication that has, in recent years, given its over over itself to the far left agenda to the point of its own irrelevance. One article was entitled, A Culture That Kills Its Children Has No Future. Let me read it again. A Culture That Kills Its Children Has No Future. The other article was entitled, America's Hands Are Full of Blood. Now, when I first saw those titles, it took my breath away because my immediate thought was, is it possible that someone in the major media finally gets it? But no, as you might imagine, neither article came even close to identifying abortion as even a remotely contributing factor in the carnage. Consequently, both of these opinion writers failed to see the stinging irony in their own hypotheses. And by the way, why are we not talking about the fact that, statistically speaking, the two groups of Americans who are most likely to die at the hands of others are black babies in the womb and young black men in our nation's cities. Black women comprise approximately 7% of the U.S. population. Black women comprise approximately 7% of the U.S. population, but account for 37% of the abortions. If that doesn't come under the heading of genocide, I don't know what does. Does anyone believe that that's sustainable? Does anyone who is intellectually honest believe that there is no correlation between that reality of abortion in the black community and the reality that black men comprise approximately 6% of the US population, but make up 53% of its homicide victims? the vast majority at the hands of other black men. When a culture of death in the form of legalized abortion pervades a a society as it does ours, the ultimate impact on society goes far beyond the unconscionable deaths of those babies who are aborted. There are other inevitable and irrefutable consequences to the wholesale killing of the most defenseless among us. And so the school killings continue unabated and the carnage in our inner cities continues unabated. Brothers and sisters, only a return to God can deliver us from this vicious cycle the God who redeemed our fallen, broken humanity by the death of his own son, the son who then rose from the dead and carried our humanity to heaven with him in his ascension, the miraculous event which we celebrate today. And so let me move on to that event. The Feast of the Ascension commemorates one of the most unusual and possibly one of the least understood of all of the events of Jesus' 33 years on earth. And at court, of course it was the event that brought his time on earth to a close. When most Christians think of the Ascension, if we think of it at all, we sometimes think of it almost as an afterthought to the resurrection or as a relatively obscure event between the resurrection and Pentecost, or maybe simply as the kind of exclamation point at the end of Jesus' 33 years. But we almost never think of it as something that is actually truly significant for us as the church, or even less so in our individual lives of faith. But we should, because it is because the ascension you see was not some add-on to the life of Christ. It was in every sense of the word a crucially pivotal event in redemption history, that is the history of God's relationship with mankind. And like all pivotal events in the life of Jesus, it was all part and parcel of God's plan. When I say it was a pivotal event, I mean that the ascension set in motion a number of things that were all part of the Father's plan. Things that could not happen without Christ's ascension. We know that the Father's plan called for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to walk upon the earth as the God, man, and Messiah of Israel for 33 years. We know that the last of those 33 years represented what we refer to as Jesus' public ministry. The highlights of that ministry included his baptism by John in the Jordan River, his temptation by Satan in the wilderness, his selection and calling of the twelve apostles, his transfiguration on the mount, his teaching and preaching, his miracles, signs and wonders, his institution of the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper, his betrayal by Judas, and his agony in the Garden of of Gethsemane, followed by all that was part of his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. All, in other words, that you and I have solemnly observed over these past seven weeks. The resurrection was then followed by a period of 40 days during which Jesus appeared to and interacted with his disciples a number of times and was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses, as the scriptures indicate. At the end of those 40 days, Jesus issued the Great Commission to the apostles and then he bodily ascended up into the clouds and out of their sight. Of the four gospel writers, only Mark and Luke record the event at all. And each does so with a single sentence. In Mark sixteen, nineteen we read, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In Luke twenty four, fifty one, we just read this while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The most detailed account of the the Ascension does come from St. Luke, however, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, which we also just read. It says this, And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, if you think back to the accounts of the resurrection, it was Luke again who recorded in virtually identical verbiage that as the women at the empty tomb were perplexed, quote, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead?" So then here in Acts chapter 1, two men in white robes, presumably the same two men, but in reality two angels in the form of men ask a similar question. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Now let's think about something here for a moment. Forty days before this event, the disciples did not actually see Jesus rise from the tomb. They didn't need to. They didn't have to. Because their eyewitness evidence of the resurrection was in seeing him alive, beginning on the day of his resurrection and numerous times thereafter, right up to the ascension, 40 days later. But they saw the ascension because they needed to in order to give their eyewitness account of that event. So then what the angels were really saying was, all right men, Jesus has left. It's time to get on with it. Okay, but get on with what? Well, the apostles obviously knew what, because the Lord had told them what in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. In other words, they knew to return to Jerusalem because the last thing Jesus had told them, as Luke 24, 49 records, was, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, that is Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. And then we read that they gathered in the upper room with the entire body of disciples, which numbered about 120 people, including, by the way, the Blessed Mother, and they spent the next 10 days waiting, waiting. And while they waited, they did two things, two very important things. First, Luke says, all these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer. So they waited, and they prayed. And secondly, they exercised their very first act of apostolic authority by selecting Matthias to replace Judas and thus bring the number of the apostles back up to 12. Now, during this time, I'm guessing, I'm speculating that there was also some questioning going along, going on among the disciples about Jesus' ascension. I think we can easily... Imagine this, can't we? They're in the upper room, 120 of them, spending much of their, t- their time in prayer, and then between, between the times of prayer, in quiet conversation, talking to one another about what has transpired, and asking questions like, why did he go? Why couldn't he have just stayed with us? How can we possibly go on without him? How can we do the things that he said we must do? We're just men, and there's so much opposition against us. Even though Jesus had already told them about the coming empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure they had no idea of the extent to which their lives would be radically transformed by that experience of Pentecost but it would. And so the stage was set for Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. And brothers and sisters, you and I today bear the legacy passed on to us by those 120 in the upper room. We have not been eyewitnesses to either the resurrection or the ascension, but we believe it and we profess it and hopefully we're forming our lives around it. And so let's rejoice today in all that our Lord accomplished for us by his time on earth and by his ascension back to heaven, calling to mind these words, which we will say again in just a few moments in today's preface preface, and with which I conclude. Quote, He ascended not to distance himself from our lowly state, but that we, his members, might be confident of following where he, our head and founder, has gone before. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.